Now, maybe I'm the only p- kind of person who gets into those types of messes. Hopefully, I'm not the only one that can relate to stuff like that. I would l- even like to hope that some of you more handy folks get into situations every now and then where you got to kind of totally restart the project because you kind of botched it, you didn't read the directions or something. But, man, sometimes I feel like I get into more than my fair share of these. Uh, not too long ago, about a couple months, Abby took the kids to her mom's for the weekend. And I think, okay, what am I going to do without kids? And normal people would probably want to do something fun and relaxing, but I'm like, what project can I accomplish? Like, without the kids getting in the way, wanting to help, you know what I mean by that, help? There's never help. Uh, and so, without them wanting to help, and without having to, like, clean up messes in the middle of this, you know, project, what can I do with them gone? And I thought, okay, I want to do something kind of big. You know, they're gone for a couple days, I got time. And so, I decide to rent a carpet shampooer and shampoo the carpets in our living room. And maybe that doesn't sound like a big job, but I'd never done it before. So um, I thought, okay, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it right. And so I moved all the furniture out. I disassembled our sectional and slid it into the kitchen sideways and carried it all by myself because I am the epitome of brute strength. And then I undid our TV. Hmm, That was pity laughing. That hurts. Um, I undid our TV and I slid it into the other room. And, uh, I mean, just totally clear out the room. So I go rent the carpet shampoo, or I buy some shampoo. I buy the even priest, you know, spray stuff, you know, pre-treater spray. And I spray the spots, and then I spend the whole day going back and forth and back and forth. And then it gets full, so you go out, take the dirty water and dump it, and you go fill it up with clean water. And if you were here a while ago when I talked about it, a day when Truman scared the goodness out of me in my garage, it was that day I was refilling it with soap, so... Does nothing to do with this, but anyway, so I, I get it all done. I'm like, this looks so good. It cleaned the carpet so well. I mean, the shampooer really, really worked, and um, I let it dry overnight, Saturday night, Sunday after church. I hurry home, and I think I'm going to vacuum it all and put everything back before anybody gets home. It's going to look great when they get home, and so um, I vacuumed it all real good, and then I even like went back over and vacuumed to put, like, you know how you get the, all the lines going one way, you know? I was even, I was really gung-ho about how good this was going to look. And so I had all the nice vacuum lines, and Abby comes in, and the kids, and it looks good for like three seconds, you know, and then they make a mess. And then a couple days later, though, Abby notices that those vacuum lines weren't going away, and it turns out that I didn't overlap enough when I was carpet shampooing, and I shampooed stripes into our carpet. (laughs) And so there are clean spots about this wide, and then every so often there's a little darker spot, like stripe, that's this wide, and she pointed that out. I was so upset. I mean, I spent hours doing this, you know, it's like, no, I didn't botch this. And so now I'm I'm like, what do I do? Do I like go get a carpet shampooer and do it all over again? But then the thought occurs to me, you know, after a while, my kid's playing, it's all going to match again. So maybe I just do nothing and wait it out until the stripes slowly fade away, um, which is probably the more likely course of action if we're all being honest, you know. Um, And I can laugh about it, sort of. It still kind of stings to tell that story because it's kind of recent. And we can laugh, you know, when it's something like that and it's a home improvement project gone wrong or, you know, you tried to fix your car on your own and then you had to call your buddy because you couldn't do the thing you thought you could do or or whatever it is. But those kinds of situations are less funny when it's something major in your life. And that's what this series is about. It's about those those times, those seasons, those moments when 
something in your life, some area of your life kind of crumbles and falls apart, and so you kind of have to take a step back, pick up the pieces, and hit the restart button on your life or an area of your life. And, you know, it could be a whole host of things. It could be an unexpected job loss. It could be um, a relationship that failed. It could be a personal failure, a moral failure that finally caught up to you, and there's consequences to the lies you told or something of that sort. Um, But uh, most of us will have some time in our life where something crashes, where something falls apart, and we're going to have to kind of sift through the pieces, take a deep breath, and start over that area of our life. And so the whole point of this series, if I can help you do anything when that moment comes, or maybe you're in that moment, the whole point of this series is to keep next time from being like last time. Whatever mistakes were made, whatever decisions you made to get you into that situation, if you're going to restart, the hope is that we can keep next time from being like last time. Because uh, far too often we repeat our mistakes, and that's not the way we want to go. And so the entire point of this series is hopefully to give you some practical steps on how to avoid making next time like last time. And we're going to start the more practical stuff today. But last week what I did to kind of lay the groundwork for the series was to give you a couple of myths that we tend to believe when we've had kind of a mess up in life. And these kind of keep us from learning. They keep us from taking the time to learn and they help us to kind of just keep repeating the mistakes of our past. And the first myth was, since I know better, I'll do better. But here's the thing. Just because you went through something, that doesn't mean that you learned everything you needed to learn and you have all the information you need to avoid something similar in the future. Or if it was a mistake you made uh, or a temptation you gave into, just because you crashed and burned the first time, that doesn't mean that you are going to have the ability, the morality, the maturity to not fall into that temptation if it comes around again. So since I know better, I'll do better, it sounds good, but that's just not true. And this keeps people from listening to the wise advice of those around them. Second myth, time is my enemy. Oh no, I had to take you know, three steps back in where I wanted to be with my life, and so, oh no, I'm 30 and I thought I'd already be here by now, but now I'm back there, and all my friends are ahead of me, and everybody else is doing this, so i got to hurry up and get going. i got to hit the fast forward button so that I can get caught back up with where everybody else is at this stage of life. And we think, time is my enemy, it's ticking away, I'm not getting any younger, right? Yeah, so we got to hurry. But yet, time is not your enemy, in fact, it is your friend. And sometimes we need those seasons where we just stop, take a breath, and learn what we need to learn and observe what we need to observe before we go forward. And so those two myths really keep people repeating over and over again the mistakes of their past. And so uh, starting today, for the next three weeks, we're going to look at one step each week that you can take when you, gotta have a, when you have a start over situation in life. And these aren't revolutionary, they're not new, you're not going to hear these and go, Anthony, you're the smartest person alive, you're probably going to hear these and go, well, duh, I kind of knew these things, but here's the deal with these start over moments. Usually, it's when something big in your life kind of falls apart in a way that you didn't see coming, it's emotional. And when your emotions run high, you have a hard time sometimes seeing the obvious path forward. And sometimes you need somebody who's not emotionally invested in your situation to come in and just kind of lay out what steps you need to take. Because sometimes your emotions make everything foggy and you just can't see where to go. You have no no idea how many times um, someone will come and ask me for advice and all I do is tell them what they already know. And it's, you know, they walk away thinking I'm a genius. And it's like, 
Thanks. I mean, I'm glad if you want to think I'm a genius, feel free. But, it, but most of the time, I'm not providing new information to people. It's just the emotional weight and the fear of a situation kind of helps us or hurts us from being able to see what we need to do. And so today's step is one that is often very simple, but it's probably the hardest one in the bunch. And it's simply this. You got to own up to your part of the blame of what went wrong last time. You got to own up to the mistakes that were, you know, your fault the last time around. Or the way I'd like to say it today is this. you got to own your slice of the pie. And you might say, what pie are we talking about, okay? Um, and if you're like me, you're already daydreaming about Thanksgiving and pumpkin pie and turkeys. And, but let's hit the rewind button on that, okay? Um, what I want to talk about is like the pie of blame, um, and I got this idea several years ago from Andy Stanley, and he was telling a story about how he used to do marriage counseling. And he'd have a couple come in, and they'd say, here's all that's wrong with our marriage, and yada, 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 and they'd go on and kind of lay it all out. And he would take two pieces of paper out, one for the husband and one for the wife, and he'd draw a circle on each of the pieces of paper. And he'd give each person a circle and a pen, and he'd say, okay, this circle represents everything that's wrong right now in your marriage. This circle is, is everything that got you here in this meeting with me. I want you to take the pen, and I want you to draw your slice of the blame for this problem. And he said he never once had anybody ever pick up the pen and draw their slice of the pie. And it's because the same reason you and I don't want to own our mistakes. You see, because when it comes to the blame of any situation, of whatever's going wrong in our life, those couples, like you and I, they look at the problems of our lives, and here's what they do. Oh, those problems. All the blame? Well, that's them. Whoever the them is, it's all their fault. They did it. You wouldn't have got fired if your boss hadn't. Your marriage wouldn't have fallen apart if she wouldn't have. And you know, I've never had anybody come into me and talk about their marriage and say, Anthony, I've ruined my marriage. I have never had anybody say that to me. I've heard lots of my wife always or my husband never. I've heard lots of that, but never I, I got this messed up and it's all my fault. I've never heard that. I've never heard anybody say, you know what? I got a very well-deserved speeding ticket by a kind officer who does his job very well. <laughs> I've never heard that. I've heard that jerk cop pulled me over for going 10 miles an hour over the speed limit. Can you believe that? Yes, that is his job. And I'm glad he caught you. Good, you know, for all of us people who drive real nice and slow and irritate everybody else, I'm glad you speeders get caught, okay? Um, I've never had anybody tell me, you know what, I lost my job and it was all my fault. Nobody's ever told me that. I've heard, my boss is a jerk and he fired me and he wanted me out of that job forever and, you know, he hired his friend and promoted his friend and got me out of there. I've heard those kinds of stories, but I've never heard anybody say, I got fired and I totally deserved it. Because the blame is always somebody else's fault. And that's the natural thing for you and I to do. But when it comes to owning your slice of the pie, it's admitting that somewhere in the blame, somewhere in the circle of what's going on with your problems, there is a slice that belongs to you. There is a piece of this that belongs to you. And maybe it's a big piece of the pie that you don't want to admit. Maybe it's something you did. Maybe it's the lies you told, the trouble you got yourself into. And it's a big piece of the pie. Or maybe, just maybe, you know, you have a little bit of the blame. And this is a lot easier to ignore than the bigger slice, okay? Because there's sometimes where we get into a problem, we get into a mess, and it's kind of indirectly our fault. Um, sometimes you, you just kind of always associate yourself with immature, 
dramatic, problematic people. And so then when your life is always drama and you're fill, cleaning up after your friends and, and someone comes to you and you're telling their story, it's kind of like, well, yeah, of course you're going to get into that mess when you hang out with those people, of course. And so you're not the one causing the mess, but you made the choice to get into that. Okay, So there are times when we are directly responsible and times when we are indirectly responsible. But whatever your slice, if it's big or small, you have got to own your part of the blame or else you are going to keep getting back into the same stuff over and over and over again. And yet, excusing the blame is so incredibly, incredibly natural for us. And if you are somebody who maybe every now and then wants to pass the blame, I'm not going to sit up here and say, look how evil you are or how awful you are. I'm just going to say, welcome to humanity, because we all do this. I notice myself, I catch myself doing it over the smallest things. Uh, You know how it is in everyday life. There's all those Little things you've got to do every day. You've got to you know, clean a toilet. You've got to set something out for dinner. You've got to vacuum or shampoo lines into your carpet. Whatever you've got to do. You know, you've got all those things you've got to do, okay? Well, um, let's say, you know, if I said, okay, we've got to set something out for dinner to thaw. And I said, okay, I'll do it. I'll go set it out right now. And then I get distracted and don't do it. And then dinner comes around, and there's nothing to make because I didn't set something out. Every single time I want to go, Abby, why didn't you remind me to set something out for dinner? Because then whose fault is it? Boom, it's her fault, not my fault. She forgot, not I forgot. She failed to, not I failed to. And I catch myself wanting to do those little things. And every now and then, it's out of my mouth, and I'm like, no, I'm dumb. Ignore me. I'm sorry. It's my fault. Carry on with life. But even small things, big things, we want to get the blame off of us and onto someone else. Because then it's their problem to work on, not mine. And it's so much easier to want to be the victim of the consequences of life than to be the victim of your own choices. And we don't want to face that. But like I said, it's natural. And humans have been doing this literally forever. And so we're going to go to Genesis chapter 3. If you've got a Bible, grab a Bible. If you don't, there might be one near you, a Black Pew Bible. Um, if you don't know much about navigating, I picked a really easy uh, book for you to find today. Genesis is the first book in the Bible, so just start at the front cover, flip a few pages, and you'll find Genesis chapter 3. Um, I never cease to be amazed by how often when I'm talking about a human problem, just something that's so common to so many of us, how often I can track that back to Genesis 3. It's just amazing. Um, But basically what's happening so far in three chapters into the Bible is God has made everything, and the pinnacle of that creation was humanity. And God made humans, and the first humans we meet in the story are Adam and Eve, and God put them in this perfect place called the Garden of Eden. And God gave them this huge load of responsibility saying, take care of the world. It's yours to manage. Here it is. Do a good job. You guys are kind of the rulers of the world, in a sense. And, and then he gives them one rule. All this responsibility in one teeny tiny rule. And it's such a silly rule. Like you would think, They would have no problem keeping this one teeny tiny rule. He says, okay, you got all these trees and all this fruit and all this food in the world? Yeah. See that one tree right there? That one. Don't eat from that tree. Okay. You got thousands, millions of trees to eat the fruit off of. That one right there. Just that one. Don't eat that one. Okay. That's the one rule they had to keep. And our story picks up when they have trouble with the one rule. Now, a little side note. So many people mistakenly think that God is all about rules and he just wants to take away the fun of life by, you know, kind of keeping us hedged in with all these rules and doing everything boring. We can't have any fun because all the fun's outside the circle, you know, and the rules keep us in the circle. But here's the deal. When God had everything the way he wanted it, 
one rule. That's what God wants. The reason we have other rules is because we can't take care of ourselves very well. And that's what we're going to see in our story today. And so, as we pick up our story, this is Adam and Eve. They just ate the fruit off the tree. And the way it went down was Eve started talking to a snake. Another side note, the story never mentions, holy smokes, a talking snake. Like, that just kind of gets passed off like it's a plain old detail. We could talk about that another day, but um, so this, this, this serpent, it says, and the serpent is, um, most people think it's either um, the embodiment of Satan or that Satan inhabited the snake and was speaking through the snake, but the snake kind of has this conversation with Eve and he gets Eve to eat the fruit. And then she turns around and gives some to Adam who was most likely standing right there with her the whole time. And so then it says in Genesis 3, Verse 7, it says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, meaning they realized they'd done something wrong, and this is where shame and guilt enter the picture. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And Adam could have said anything. You know, he could have said anything. You know, there's those moments, you know, when you open your mouth and you say something and you look back and you're like, of all the sentences composed of all the words in the English language, why did I have to put that one together and let it come out of my mouth? Because God said, Adam, what did you do? And Adam said, uh, the woman, sir, totally the woman. And then I love it because it's the woman that you put here with me. Meaning, you know, everything was fine until you gave me that woman. Okay, and here's what's funny is um, the word that when Adam is given Eve is he calls her a gift. Okay, the same word is used here. If you hadn't gifted me that woman, you know, everything was fine until she showed up. And so Adam passes the blame, not just to Eve, but to God, which I think is incredibly gutsy. Because God made Adam from nothing, he breathed life into his lungs, and God could now turn Adam into a grease smear on the ground if he wanted to, and Adam's like, yeah, God, it's your fault. That is bold, my friend. Okay, so he does that. He says, the woman that you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it and then the Lord said to the woman what is this you have done and she could have said anything and she says the serpent the serpent did it he deceived me he tricked me and then I ate the fruit it was all the part because of that serpent that was here he tricked me and I find it so telling that the first thing the first thing that humans ever did when they were confronted with their mistakes and their sin was to pass the blame off to someone else that, I mean, it's so natural. Doesn't that explain a lot about why that's the first thing you want to do? I mean, when the first time when somebody calls you on something, you want to just start making excuses. Maybe you want to get puffed up and say, how dare you accuse me of doing such a thing? When there's that other voice in your brain going, but you did do that such a thing, you know? And, and you're trying to like have this back and forth with the angel and the demon on your shoulder, you know? But we always want to pass the blame. That's the first thing Adam and Eve did. They tried to pass the blame. And the other thing about this, the excuses they made, they were true. I mean, isn't what Adam said true? Didn't Eve give him the fruit and he ate it? And didn't God make Eve? Okay, it's true. 
The only thing is, it's not the whole truth. The whole truth is that God put Adam there to be a blessing to his wife and to be a leader to this new order in the world. And Adam just stood there probably the whole time, the way the story's worded, it sounds like he was there the whole time she's talking with the serpent. And he just sits there and does nothing. And then he eats the fruit that he knows God told them not to eat. And then he says, the serpent tricked me and I ate it. That sounds so tricky, like the serpent like swapped out her apple for this forbidden fruit and then like went on his way. But no, she had a conversation where the serpent says, if you eat this, you don't need God, you'll be like God. And she wanted to be like God, and so she ate the fruit. There's more to the story, but what they said was true. It was just not the whole truth. And, and that's kind of what we do. In fact, that's the best way to pass the blame, is you tell a version of the story, but not the whole story. And, uh, you know, I, I almost hesitate to get into talking anything about the presidential race that's going on right now. But um, one thing I, I was just floored to learn the other night after the debate was that after the, the debate, there's a place called the spin room. How many of you heard of the spin room? I had never heard of the spin room. The spin room is where a representative for the candidates gets in a room with the reporters and the representative tries to spin the details of what just happened at the debate to make their candidate look awesome. They try to contort the details just ever so slightly so that their candidate looks like they won the debate even when they didn't win the debate so that the reporters will maybe have favorable things to say about their candidate. And the thing that annoys me the most about the spin room is that they call it the spin room. Like, no one's even trying to hide the fact of what's going on in there, okay? It's not like the detail sorting room. I mean, they, it's like, we're going to go in here and tell a version of the truth, and that we all know what's going on. Like, that just astounds me that that's how we operate in politics in our country. You know, that that's just, everybody's so, we'll tell half the truth, but not the whole truth. That just blows my mind. But yet, when we pass blame, that's often what we do. We tell a version of the story. And the people who I see do this the most, they have a very well-rehearsed story every time. There's always a very good reason why they did it, it wasn't me. And oftentimes we get so good at telling our little story about how my boss was mean or, or they did this and it's never my fault. And we kind of get this story where life is just kind of dumping all of its mess on us that we never get around to looking in the mirror and asking, what's my slice of the pie. What did I do wrong in this mess, and what can I do better again in the future? We're so busy rehearsing the story and editing the details and spinning the situation so that we look better and we look innocent and we look blameless that we never actually just honestly ask, what did I do wrong, and how can I be better? And that's absolutely insane to me because Unless we change our ways, we're going to keep making the same mistakes. And the overall trajectory of our life will never be different. We will just keep repeating the same stuff over and over and over again. And what bothers me about that, especially when you come to a place like church and you have a majority of the people in the room who are Christians, is that we worship a God who makes it okay to not be okay. Do you know that? We don't have to be perfect. And we don't have to pretend that we're perfect. You know what we are? We are in a long family tree of buffoons that started with Adam and Eve. I mean, they 
that, that, what they did, the sin that they committed right there, that was like the biggest sin ever. I mean, you might say, well, they just ate the wrong fruit. Okay, yeah, but their sin was such a big deal that it caused like ripples throughout history, throughout humanity, and we're still suffering for what they did. We are just like them now because of that, okay? And so we come from a messed up people. All of us are messed up, and God makes it okay for us to not be okay. That means we don't have to pretend we're perfect. We don't have to hide our guilt and our shame, but rather we acknowledge that we have a God of love and grace and mercy who wants to restore us and redeem us. And the greatest evidence of that comes in the verses that follow verse 13 there, because what we have is what's called a chiasm. I'm going to give you two big words today, this first one. It's not a big word, but it's a weird word. How about that? Chiasm. A chiasm is when you have a passage of Scripture, and the beginning and the end are similar, and the second point and the next to last point are similar, and so on and so on. And so you have this middle detail in the story that has kind of heightened significance. And so when God shows up in the story, he talks to Adam, he talks to Eve, and then in a minute he talks to the serpent, And then God hands out punishment for their sins. And he hands out the punishments in reverse order. Punishes the serpent, punishes Eve, and then he punishes Adam. And it all points to this interaction between God and the serpent. And so in the Bible, just whenever you're reading it, if you kind of notice a pattern where the beginning and the end reflect, sometimes there's this like, you know, kind of boomerang shape to these passages where they're all kind of pointing to something significant in the middle. And here, in this passage, it's that interaction between God and the serpent. And what we find in this passage with God and the serpent in this interaction is what's called, second weird word, the Proto-Evangelion. That's a fun one, isn't it? Proto-Evangelion. Seven syllables. That, you'd be impressed right now. You can be impressed for me, okay? And it just, but it just means the first gospel, okay? The Proto-Evangelion just means the first gospel. It's a big word to say something simple, meaning the first time the good news of Jesus is told in the Bible is right here in Genesis 3. Because here's what it says. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring and yours. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And right here in this curse that God is dealing out to the serpent, we get this hint that somewhere down the road, Satan is going to be crushed. The work of Satan in the world is going to be destroyed. And yes, Satan will get his licks in too, but ultimately he is not going to win the battle. And we get this foreshadowing of Jesus in that Jesus came into the world to die for our sins, meaning that our sins, all the times we've messed up, whether we've passed the blame successfully or not, God sees the truth. For every one of our sins, we deserve death. That's what the Bible says. It's not great news right there, but that's the truth that is represented over and over again in Scripture. You and I deserve the punishment of death for our crimes against God. And because God was gracious and merciful and he did not want us to die for our sins, Jesus comes into the world and he walks a perfect life, the life we should have lived. And he goes to death on a cross. And in that death on the cross, he takes everybody's sin on his shoulders and he pays the punishment for all of our sin collectively at once when he was on the cross. He was the perfect sacrifice for all human sin throughout all of time and history. And so Jesus, when he was on the cross, the weight of Satan's work struck him 
It hurt him. That's why we take communion, to remind us of his broken body and his shed blood. Jesus was injured in this. But Jesus busted out of the grave, and he did not stay dead. Death did not win. Satan did not win. And Jesus defeats Satan and sin and death so that we can all have hope and life. And so Satan, he's already lost, even if he doesn't know it yet. Okay, Jesus destroyed the work of Satan, even though Satan got a few licks in on him. And so most scholars, most theologians agree this is the first hinting of Jesus in the world. And I find it so amazing that as soon as sin enters, God already, has, already has a plan. As soon as sin pops into the story, so does Jesus as a prediction to cover and take away the sin of humanity. And so we don't have to die in our sin. This is the first hinting that God makes it okay for us to not be okay. Another thing I love at the very beginning of the story um, after Adam and Eve sin, God knows, okay? Just because they sewed some leaves together and hid in the trees, that doesn't fool God. We know that, right? Okay? God knew that they'd messed up. God knew what they'd done, but he went looking for them anyway. He knew they'd messed up. He knew they'd broke the one rule. I mean, how ridiculous is that? One rule. And God went looking for them anyway. What grace, what mercy our God has shown us throughout our lives. And so, when it comes to trying to pass the blame, if you call yourself a Christian, if you say, yes, I trust in Jesus for my salvation, then trust him. And don't try to paint yourself to be prettier than you are. Jesus already died for all your imperfections. He already takes them away. One of the key signs of Christian maturity is that when you mess up, you don't take that guilt and shame and go shove it in the corner where no one can see it. But you say, I messed up. And you lay it before Jesus and you say, God, I'm so sorry, please forgive me. And you pick yourself up and you keep walking along in his grace. Because we don't have to be okay all the time because we have Jesus. And God knew we weren't going to be okay. And so if you're a believer, I don't know, maybe you're in the spot, maybe you've done some things you're not proud of, but I just got to encourage you, own your slice of the pie because hiding it doesn't make any sense. Saying you believe that Jesus is, is sufficient for your salvation and then it doesn't make sense to hide things away and tuck them away. Because he died for that, to make you new, so that you can bring them to him, you can be forgiven of those things, and you can ask for God's help to help you walk a better path in the future. And maybe you're here, and maybe life has just been kind of a mess, and you're ready for like a grand start over button. You just want a whole grand reset button on your life. God can be that for you. Jesus can be that for you. Because when we have sin in our lives, we are stuck in our sin, and we deserve the punishment for our sin, which, as we already said, was eternity and, and hell and death and separation from God. But Jesus came to protect you from that, to remove that from you, so that when you put your trust in him, you have the weight of all guilt, of all shame taken off of your shoulders, and you have your future changed. Now, in this life, where you can start having your heart shaped and getting some of the evil weeded out so that you can walk in more like Jesus little by little every day, but you get your eternity changed as well, where you don't have to worry about what happens on the other side of your funeral, and you have life everlasting with God in heaven forever. And you can have that today. And if you are ready to kind of hit that restart button, I will be in the back of the room. As soon as I get off the stage, I will be in the back of the room for the rest of the service. I would love to talk with you, pray with you, explain to you the goodness of Jesus. We can even baptize you today if you would like that. Okay, The water would be cold, but hey, 
Why not, right? Not, why not be, have a nice little brisk restart to your life, okay? And if you're unfamiliar with what baptism is, we've got a little tub back here that we fill with water, and we simply lay you in the water and bring you back out of it. And the reason we do that is it's not like there's no magic water or anything, you know? It's not holy water. It's just regular tap water. There's nothing magical about me doing it or Ben doing it or anything like that. But it's this idea that you are connecting your life to Jesus, that as you go under the water, you trust that Jesus took all of your sin on his shoulders and he died for it. So just as Jesus died for your sin, as you go under the water, your life of sin dies as well. And when you come out of that water, just like Jesus rose with victorious with new life, you come up with new life in Christ, a life where you can live like Jesus from that point on. And so why would we hide when we have that great God on the other side of our mistakes? We're not going to get shame on you. We're not going to get, he's not going to turn us into a grease smear on the ground. If God did not smear Adam into a a stain on the ground, he's probably not going to do that to you. But we've got to own our slice of the pie, or we're just going to keep relooping and relooping the same stuff we've been doing over and over and over again. And I don't want to do that. I've done that game before, and many of you have too. So maybe you're ready for a fresh start. Maybe you're ready to start things over. The first step, though, is to own your slice of the pie. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this truth that we can own our blame. And that that seems so scary until we explore your grace and mercy. That you are so kind and merciful to those people who come to you broken and by their by their shame and their mistakes that if if we mess something up we can come to you father and say oh god what have i done please help me please forgive me please change my heart so i don't do it again and you receive us with grace and mercy in fact the only people that jesus was harsh with in the new testament were the people who tried to pretend that they were perfect so let us not be those people Let us not hide behind a facade. Let us not hide behind some veneer or a pasted-on smile. But let us own what's real. And we all have a slice of the blame for our mistakes and our situations, however small that slice may be. And until we own our sin, until we repent of our sin, until we turn away from the evil that lives inside of our hearts, we're never going to change, and you're never going to be able to, to, to help us to live that new life in Christ. So help us, Father, to own our slice, to honestly confess to you and to others our mistakes so that we can have freedom from our sin and live a new life with you. Let, I know that's scary to some people to think that, you know, owning that, owning up to what they've done, but let us have confidence today that when we own up to our slice, we are met with the grace of Christ and freedom from the weight of that shame and guilt forever. Thank you for the price Jesus paid. Thank you for the goodness of his grace. Thank you for the kindness that was shown to us when he decided to live in our tough world and experience all the pain that we go through every day so that he could save us out of this mess. Thank you that you don't ask us to be perfect and work our way to heaven, but when we're imperfect, you came down and rescued us out of our imperfection. What a good God you are. May we realize that and be in awe of it each and every day. We pray all this in Jesus' good and holy name. Amen.